0: Hi, my name is Doug Hooley, and this is podcast number 11 in the Called Out Cafe series based on a book I wrote several years ago called Watch. Thank you so much for listening. I know you have many choices on how to spend your time, and I pray this use of your time will be beneficial. If you're following along in the book, which I recommend you do, I'm now on chapter 10 called Recycling and Prophecy, The Way the World Works. It's not necessary to have the book to understand what I'm talking about. Some people just learn better by reading rather than listening. For some, like me, it's advantageous to both read and listen to teaching. Whatever floats your boat, right? I once attended a risk management training program for criminal justice professionals. The popular speaker's main theme was, quote, If something is predictable, it's preventable, unquote. I get what he was talking about and mostly agree with him, but predicting that the sun will rise tomorrow and that Jesus will return someday blows some rather large holes in this thesis. Both things are not preventable. This seminar instructor got paid very well to travel around the United States and inform his trainees that they can use what they have learned from the past to prevent things from happening in the future. To support his claims, the speaker kept coming back to what I believe is a rock-solid principle. He phrased it a number of ways, but essentially it's that history repeats itself. Another way of putting it is that there is nothing that will occur in the future that has not in some way already occurred in the past. I recognized his words. It turns out that even his training curriculum is just history repeating itself. For millennia, philosophers and those who study history have stated, history repeats itself. Even the guy who thought he was the first to say history repeats itself was probably repeating somebody else. There is an emperor and Stoic philosopher named Marcus Aurelius, and he observed that there is, quote, nothing new under the sun, unquote. In his writings, Marcus Aurelius said, Consider the past— the great shifts in political supremacy. You may foresee also the things which will be, for they will certainly keep the same form. They cannot possibly deviate from the order in which they take place now. Accordingly, to have contemplated human life for forty years is the same to have contemplated it for ten thousand years. For what more will you see? Well, the wise King Solomon, who preceded Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius by over a millennium, was already pointing out that because we live in a world of cycles, there is, quote, nothing new under the sun, unquote. Here's what he said. The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, This is new. It has been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. I guess we're pretty forgetful. That's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. And again, that was King Solomon that said that. Of course, this is not talking about specific technologies. I'm not saying that ancient man made it to the moon or that they had smartphones. It's talking about things pertaining to things like society, anthropology, politics, and natural phenomenon. With the general warnings regarding the end of the age now behind us in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to move on to a subject that may have initially confused his disciples It's the same subject which still causes confusion and division today. Because of this, I want to first discuss this concept of history repeating itself. Observing and quantifying the way things work in God's universe is what we sometimes call science. Science and faith are often at odds. As the co-authors of the Bible documented, God sometimes chose to work outside of what is scientifically provable in the natural world. This is the case whenever He accomplished deeds that only one, like Himself, who exists outside of the bounds of nature, could accomplish. However, God supernaturally created the universe in such a way that He could also accomplish His will through natural means. One thing God created into his universe is what we know as a cycle. One of the foundational building blocks of the interpretive approach I use in this discussion is based on an observation of one of the scientifically provable principles found in God's universe. History repeats itself. The very definition of science is built on this principle. Cycles are a part of what can be thought of as a component of God's operating system. Gravity, the temperature at which water freezes, and the laws of thermodynamics are also included in this operating system. When we understand that God created a universe that works in cycles, we can resolve some of the points of contention between various camps of end-times theorists. Remember, preterists are those who believe that most prophetic scriptures have been fulfilled in the past. Futurists are those who believe that most prophetic scriptures will be fulfilled in the future. History repeating itself explains how both preterists and futurists can be correct at the same time. The issues that lead to contention between preterists and futurists are the same issues that contribute to why many tend to spiritualize prophecy. Spiritualizers are those who say that prophetic scripture may not be taken literally or interpreted as other scripture in the Bible. They believe that because a literal fulfillment seems so unlikely. They think that prophecy must be taken metaphorically in order to understand it properly. Creation itself shouts out to us that God's world works in cycles. Seasons, the geologic, hydrologic, astronomic, and atmospheric cycles of nature are everywhere to be seen. Within the human body, there are many cycles, circulatory, menstrual, respiratory, sleep, etc., Animals hibernate according to a cycle. The science of cultural anthropology points to a cycle of the rise and fall of civilizations. First, there's simplicity, then a rise in complexity, a decrease in marginal returns or non-sustainability, and then collapse, and then repeat, simplicity, etc. Most of history repeating itself goes unnoticed by people. Because our lives are relatively short, We view our time on earth as unique. We think we're the first generation to have difficulty with raising our children. We think crime is worse now than ever. We think society is more immoral than ever. We think government is more corrupt than ever. We think people have abandoned the truth for the first time, etc. And, as my deep dive into church history has revealed, we become convinced that Jesus is going to return in our own lifetime. Well, Emperor Aurelius was not the only one outside of the Judeo-Christian world to have stumbled on the truth of the cyclical nature of the universe. Although where they have ended up may be the result of truth that has been twisted, many ancient people, philosophies, and religions have taken note of this principle. For example, traditional Native American beliefs include that, quote, the Creator designed the universe and our Mother Earth to function as a system of circles and cycles. Therefore, to heal, we must understand and live by the cycle and circle system in every area of our lives, unquote. That quote comes from the White Buffalo Organization. Various Eastern religions are religions of wheels and cycles. Buddhists and Hindus have their reincarnation and karma. What goes around comes around. All forms of astrology run rampant with cycles. Chinese astrology cycles through 10 various animal years before it repeats itself. Like our own calendar, there are cycles found in the Egyptian calendar. The Mayans took note of the solar, lunar, and seasonal cycles of the Earth. However, the Mayan calendar contains far more than yearly, reoccurring cycles. They note cycles at various years, like 28, 65, 280, 819 2200 and and more days. Each period uh, brought its own religious significance to the Mayans. Well, there are cycles in the Bible, too. I'm sure that this cycle talk sounds spooky or mystical to mainstream or classically trained Christians who've been taught or at least heard that these types of things, which other religions recognize are maybe evil, or originate from Eastern mysticism religions. However, I would argue that God created cycles before the Eastern mystics. Then, the Eastern mystical religions took this component of God's operating system, twisted it, and turned it into what some would indeed call evil. That's a common tactic of the deceiver, Satan. Take what's good, twist it, and make it bad. Although I'm not aware of other interpreters pointing to the Beast of Revelation as being a prophetic visual model of Satan's cycle-based failure of a plan, I'm not the first one to point out cycles in prophecy. End Times teacher and author Charles Cooper writes the following, quote, A prophecy can form a pattern that may repeat itself more than once. This is called pattern fulfillment by some, unquote. The Bible tells us of many cycles, the first being the seven-day week that God established. Jewish sages and early Christians believed that the seven-day week established the pattern of a larger 7,000-year period of time. Day seven would be a thousand years of the Messiah ruling on earth, paralleling the seventh day, God's day of rest. This period of time would end with what they call the eighth day. That's when God would make all things new again. Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us that God made the end known from the beginning. Read about that in Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. God dictated several important days to be recognized weekly, annually, establishing cycles of worship, atonement, forgiveness, rest, and renewal. There are seven high holidays or feasts that were established by God the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Shavat, Rosh Hashanah, Yam Kippur, and Sukkot. You can read about the establishment of these feasts in Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus chapter 25, you can read about God establishing a 50-year cycle known as the Year of Jubilee, in which debts were forgiven, property went back to its original owner, and slaves were freed. Exodus 2310 10-11 establishes a farming cycle. Farm your land for six years, and on the seventh, let it rest. Well, one way cycles have been commonly recognized in the Bible is by observing near and far applications of many prophecies. In his book, The Sign, by the late Robert Van Campen, he states that one of his guiding principles of biblical interpretation is to recognize that, quote, Many passages of Scripture in both testaments have both near and far implications and applications. He goes on to state, quote, in other words, prophecy often operates on two levels of fulfillment. Having both a near and far application means that a divine predictive utterance that was given through a prophet may have had immediate or near importance and relevance for the contemporaries of the prophet. At the same time, the prophecy was also for the purpose of foretelling an event far off in the future. My argument is, because of the way God's operating system works, it can also sometimes mean that the prophecy concerns a reoccurring or cyclical event, ultimately ending with the final event. Oftentimes, these reoccurring prophecies will have many components associated with them, They've been fulfilled in the past, but there will be some components that were not fulfilled. This has brought many people to wrong conclusions when they interpret these scriptures. For example, many would argue that all of the prophecies found in the book of Daniel have already occurred in the past. Yet the angel speaking to Daniel tells him specifically that the prophecies are related to, quote, the time of the end, unquote. In fact, the angel tells Daniel that he will go to his rest or die, and then take his allotted place at the end of days, referring to the time of the resurrection. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 12. This is the problem that Preterists run into with the Olivet Discourse. They believe that most of the things that Jesus spoke about were fulfilled by 70 AD. Yet, we're left with signs that have never occurred, including the gathering of the elect, the return of Jesus, in splendor. Very few argue that that's ever happened. Failure to recognize that God works through cycles can lead to a great deal of confusion and misinterpretation of prophetic scripture. However, one needs to be very careful when applying this principle and note that while many things in God's universe do work in cycles, all cycles appear to have an end or ultimate fulfillment. The circle of life, for example, occurs only when one's speaking of birth, living, dying, and then the one that's gone is replaced by a descendant who's born, lives, and dies. Individual people are not recycled, as many in the world believe. The author of the book of Hebrews writes, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. That's in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Biblical cycles seem to have ultimate fulfillments associated with them. For example, like the Passover, they occur and occur year after year, and then Jesus comes along and fulfills the meaning of the Passover by becoming the ultimate Passover sacrifice. Although the Passover celebration continues, it now has new meaning for the follower of Christ. An example of the cyclical nature of prophecy is found in the book of Zechariah. The prophecy written by Zechariah, found in chapter 9, verses 13 to 17, Uh, was written in about 480 B.C. It says this, "'For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. The Lord will save his people. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning.' The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. This prophecy was fulfilled like perfectly over 300 years later, after it was written in 165 B.C., when the Jews rose up and defeated the evil king Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. However, God will ultimately fulfill this prophecy for the last time yet in the future when he again defends the nation of Israel from the Antichrist. There are many other places in Scripture that we can find examples of more than one fulfillment of prophecy. In the book of Malachi, we read about the prophet Elijah, who is sometimes also referred to as Elias. Elijah had clearly been around and done his time on earth once, but as it turns out, he had a mission left undone. A mission he would need to complete two times. Behold... I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to his children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. For thousands of years, because of this prophecy, Jews have set an extra place at their Passover tables in anticipation of Elijah one day showing up. It's taught that Elijah will precede the Messiah. As it is written by Malachi, he will precede the day of the Lord. Yet, there is an easy case to be made that Elijah already has preceded the coming of the Messiah. It was 2,000 years ago when John the Baptist came in, quote, the spirit of Elijah, unquote, turning people towards God just prior to Jesus beginning his ministry. Jesus says in regards to this, This is from Matthew 11, 12 to 14. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Even though Jesus himself tells us that this prophecy concerning Elijah has been at least partially fulfilled, It is yet to be ultimately fulfilled since the world has not yet seen the great and terrible quote, day of the Lord, unquote, that Malachi refers to in his prophecy. Either Elijah or someone coming in the spirit of Elijah is predicted to come again prior to the return of Jesus and the pouring out of God's wrath. This is what we have an indication of happening in the book of Revelation chapter 11, where we see two witnesses prophesying or proclaiming the Word of God in Jerusalem. No doubt, turning people's hearts back to the beliefs of their fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can read about that in Revelation eleven three 3-6. Well, maybe the simplest examples of double or reoccurring prophecies in the Bible are those which relate to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. He came once, just as predicted in the Old Testament. Who would have ever thought before He came the first time that the Messiah was actually being predicted to come twice to this earth. First, as a sacrifice and spiritual Savior. The second time, as a physical Savior to the Jews and Christians alive at that time who He will rescue. And as a king and a judge who will reign over this entire earth. Why am I talking about all this cycle stuff? Well, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus refers to an event called the Abomination of Desolation. It was spoken of by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. By doing so, Jesus introduced the topic of the one that commits this abomination of desolation, the Antichrist. The Antichrist is referred to as, quote, the beast, unquote, in the book of Revelation. I would argue that the Antichrist is really only depicted as being a part of the beast of Revelation. The beast is really a symbol for Satan's entire plan to control the world and destroy God's people. This plan has included several past iterations of Antichrist kings or rulers. However, since the beast is a commonly accepted term for the Antichrist that will arise at the end of the age, I'll play along and I'll refer to the Antichrist as the beast. The important prophecy-related grand cycle we're focusing on is the cyclical nature of the beast. The beast, as seen in Revelation, is a complex symbol that represents more than just an evil world leader of the future. The beast is also a symbol representing specific historical kingdoms or leaders of those kingdoms that have previously greatly oppressed, enslaved, and figuratively had their way with the nation of Israel. The Beast of Revelation, like I already said, is best described as being a prophetic visualization of Satan's plan to come against God and his chosen people through the use of seven different earthly kingdoms and kings. Consider what the Apostle John documented regarding his unique experience. In the passage I'm about to read, John has a fantastic vision from his vantage point on the islet of Patmos. And that's off the coast of what we now know as the nation of Turkey. In Revelation chapter 12, it's recorded that John had a vision of a, quote, dragon, unquote. Don't be frightened. It's not a real dragon. It's a symbol. Book of Revelation has many symbols. But you know what? The book of Revelation often defines its own symbolism. In Revelation 12:9, the dragon is defined as being a symbol, which stands for Satan. A short time later in Revelations chapter 13, John sees another, quote, beast. It's described here in Revelation 13, 1-4. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon, who we just identified as Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed this beast. And they worshipped the dragon, Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, "'Who is like the beast?' And who can fight against it? Well, later on, we see a woman riding the same beast that we just described. This is what John wrote about what he witnessed. This is found in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. So he, an angel, carried me, John, away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns." Well, everything contained in these passages is symbolic for something. We know to take the characters of this scripture as symbolism and not literally, because these symbols are defined for us in what John wrote. Prophetic symbolism, contrary to popular belief, is sometimes easy to figure out in scripture. In this case, let's set aside the woman and the leopard body and the bare feet and the lion mouth and the ten horns of the beast for a minute and concentrate specifically on the seven heads of this particular beast. A couple verses later, the symbolism of the seven heads is explained to us in Revelation 17, 9-10. Here's that passage. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, He must continue for a little while." So the heads of the beast symbolize two different things, seven mountains on which the woman sits, and seven kings. Further, from the Apostle John's historical perspective in approximately 97 AD when he wrote this, it's explained to him that five of the seven kings, or kingdoms represented, have fallen already. They're in the past. They are dead historical figures from John's point of view. Kings or kingdoms that no longer held power and political influence over Israel as of AD 97. I don't want to get hung up here on the mountains right now. I'll just tell you that I believe these mountains to be synonymous with the kings. They represent their large mountainous kingdoms, five of which had fallen from John's perspective. One was in existence during John's time, and one, from John's perspective, was yet to come. A sixth king, the one who, quote, is, unquote, or was currently in power during John's day, was the Roman Empire, pretty easily identified. The seventh of the seven kings or kingdoms from John point in time had not yet come. John's vision was of a beast representing seven separate kings or kingdoms, yet all wrapped up into one great beast. The kings or kingdoms would likely have many things in common, in spite the fact that they all reign at different points in history or the future. It's because of the seven-in-one beast that there is a cycle suggested. Because they are of the same beast, as kingdoms come and go, they will all have similar manners of operating. They may try to obtain similar results and hold similar goals and have a common purpose. They therefore may take similar actions. In fact, this is what we see occurring in the Bible when we identify the six different heads or kingdoms of the beast. Now, there is an eighth beast, uh, which is a kingdom or a ruler, that will have many similarities to the first seven beasts. In fact, unusual and unnatural as it may be, the eighth beast, as described, will actually be one of the original seven beasts who previously died from a mortal head wound and comes back to life. Let's read what John recorded in the book of Revelation regarding this bizarre situation. This is from Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. This is from Revelation 17, verses 11 to 12. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth beast, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to its destruction. This is from Revelation 17, verse 7 to 8. But the angel who said to me, Why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to arise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction and the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come talk about cycles The angel tells John that this eighth beast he saw once was or once did exist in the past. Then the angel says that from the future point in time that John is prophetically viewing, the beast does not exist. He's dead. Finally, the angel says that the eighth beast is going to exist again one day by coming up out of the abyss. That's to say that God will allow him to be resurrected and live again. The eighth beast represents the future Antichrist and his kingdom. He will have originally been one of the first seven kings or kingdoms that make up the overall beast. History does not get much more recycled than that. Why doesn't John just describe an eight-headed beast when he says that there is an eighth beast? After all, a separate head represents each of the seven preceding beast empires. It's because... The head of the eighth beast empire will be represented by one of the original seven heads because it is one of the original seven beast empires that has been revived and has come back to life. To sum this up, the seven-headed beast vision that John had represents eight cycles of Satan's puppet governments, the beast empires. The eighth and final cycle will be that of a future Antichrist empire. Five cycles, or kingdoms, had occurred before John's time. John found himself in the middle of the sixth cycle, or beast empire, the Romans, and two cycles would come in the future from John's first century perspective and time. If this has got you confused, uh, please sleep on it, think about it, listen to it again, read the related scriptures until you get it. It's really important to understand. Understanding the principle of cycles could resolve some of the biggest points of contention in prophetic study circles. Preterists see most of the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse and of Revelation as having already occurred relatively soon after they were first uttered. This view largely depends on an authorship date of 64 AD for the book of Revelation. They say that the events of the Apostle John wrote about would have most likely been fulfilled around 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and partial destruction of the Jewish Temple Mount complex. The Preterist's approach fails to recognize that the entire scope of the Book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse is the end of the age, the return of Christ, and the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth, and the day of the Lord. The Book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse involve far more than only the siege of Jerusalem and the partial diaspora of the Jews from Israel in the first century. Yet the Preterists are absolutely correct in some of their observations. They observed a fulfillment of prophecy when the beast, or the Roman iteration of the Antichrist beast, acting like the beast he is, took over Jerusalem and the temple again. However, just as this was not the first time the beast had done this in 70 A.D., It was also not the last time he will do it. Futurists, so far as prophetic studies are concerned, are those that believe that most end times prophecies, including those in the Olivet Discourse, are yet to be fulfilled in the future. The fatal error that the typical end times futurist makes is that he or she fails to recognize and acknowledge that some biblical prophetic events have indeed occurred or have been fulfilled at least once in the past. This is a denial of the facts of history and puts futurists at odds with preterists. The preterist makes his or her mistake by trying to cram most prophecy into a historical box, saying that with little exception, it's all already been fulfilled. Both philosophies, preterism and futurism, run into problems when dealing with a passage such as the Olivet Discourse. Obviously, some things Jesus was talking about have occurred in history, But just as obvious, we can see Jesus is talking about his second coming and the end of the age, a time yet to come. There's no question that it appears that some of what was prophesied about by Jesus in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 looks like it already occurred almost 2,000 years ago. Many of the prophecies could even be considered ultimately fulfilled if not for one main reason, All of the prophecies in the Olivet Discourse are tied to the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, and the establishment of his kingdom, and none of those events have taken place. The persecution mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, as well as the Antichrist and the destruction of the temple, are without purpose if they don't lead to the return of Jesus, his rescue of Israel, the rapture of his church, and the beginning of the day of the Lord. What happened in 70 AD with the destruction of the Jewish temple was a result of a beast acting like a beast. In other words, the Roman Empire, the kingdom, or the sixth head of the beast that was in existence during the time of John, was operating according to the typical way that the beast operates and always has operated. A lion has a typical predatory pattern, as does a bear, a leopard, or any other animal that hunts. Man is also a creature of habit, ranging from people who need their first cup of coffee in the morning, which I'm on my second one, if you have to know, to those people with pathological, social, deviant, predatory behaviors such as pedophiles and serial killers. To illustrate this point, let's look at the specific prophetic event that Jesus spoke of during the Olivet Discourse. We'll be talking about this more in the next podcast, but here it is for now. This is found in... Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on his rooftop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. This is the specific prophecy about what Jesus called the abomination of desolation that he was referring to in the book of Daniel. This is, uh, there are several places it's mentioned. This one is in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Jesus was speaking of an event that Daniel had prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. He was saying that this event was in the future from the time he was speaking. How confusing that statement must have been to his disciples. No doubt they would have already thought that Daniel's prophecy had been fulfilled when the Greeks sacked Jerusalem hundreds of years earlier and King Antiochus Epiphanes IV caused pigs to be sacrificed to pagan gods on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Pigs, of course, are considered unclean animals, according to Jewish law. So, was Jesus saying to them that this prophecy had not yet been fulfilled? Or was he saying it would be fulfilled again? First century historian Josephus confirms the belief of his contemporaries, which would include the disciples, that this prophecy had already been fulfilled. Concerning Daniel's abomination of desolation prophecy, Josephus wrote this, And from among them there should arise a certain king that should overcome our nation and their laws, and he should take away their political government and should spoil the temple and forbid sacrifices to be offered for three years' time. And indeed it so came to pass that our nation suffered these things under Antiochus Epiphanes, according to Daniel's vision and what he wrote many years before they came to pass. You can find that in the book of Antiquities of the Jews, book 10, chapter 11, verse 7. This event appeared to have been fulfilled again in 70 AD, when the Romans both destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and again made sacrifices to Roman gods on the Temple Mount. That was truly an abomination of desolation. The Roman, sixth head of the beast, seemed to be acting just like the Greek, fifth head of the beast. Even so, the eighth and final beast will again commit something like this act before Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. In addition to the desecrations taking place under the Greeks, or the fifth beast empire, and once under the Romans, the sixth beast empire, one can see several instances of different types of desecrations and abominations occurring in Solomon's temple even before and during Daniel's day. The temple was also desecrated under King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Josephus tells us that one of Nebuchadnezzar's generals was ordered to plunder and set fire to the temple in Jerusalem. He robbed all of the gold and silver from the temple as well as the holy implements and vessels found there and took them back to Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar dedicated them to his own gods. The Babylonian head of the beast, the third beast empire, was acting just like the other beasts would in the future. What happened in the Old Testament days and what happened under General Titus in 70 AD was all a type of evil that will have its final fulfillment under the Antichrist man of lawlessness of the future. They all share the same type of evil in common. They were anti-Jehovah, anti-Israel, anti-Jew, and became anti-Messiah or Christ and anti-Christian. How this evil plays out will apparently include the destruction of a future temple in Jerusalem one day, just as it has previously taken place in history. The Apostle Paul tells us that the future Antichrist, or beast, who he refers to as the man of lawlessness, will in fact do business in the same way that the past heads of the beast have. Paul sent the following scripture to believers who seemed to be worried that the Lord had already returned and they had somehow missed it. This is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-5. to Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul's Warning of the Act of the Abomination of Desolation Clearly, the final act of the man of sin and lawlessness that he speaks of, the Antichrist, that he's going to commit is the act of abomination of desolation by seating himself in the temple of God and displaying himself as God. This will be the final time that this will happen and the ultimate fulfillment of both Daniel and Jesus' and Paul's prophecies. An adequate study or explanation of what I'm about to talk about is a little outside of our topic here, but... The historic cycle of the nation of Israel is really closely tied to the prophetic cycles of the beast. In the Old Testament, we see the repeated cycle of Israel turning to God. God rescues them, then they turn their back on God. He allows them to fall into the hands of their enemies, then they again turn to Him, and the cycle repeats. The nation of Israel is yet to turn to God for the final time and ask for their deliverance. That will happen as they experience the persecution of the final iteration of the beast, or the Antichrist. For a great study and explanation on the cycles of Israel and how it's tied to the end of the age, I highly recommend Joel Richardson's book, Sinai to Zion. Honestly, if you don't understand how Israel fits into the end times and how it's only the culmination of a story that started thousands of years ago, you cannot completely understand Bible prophecy. I'll go into detail next time about the abomination of desolation. This time, I only want to focus on the cyclical nature of prophecies related to Jesus' statement on the Mount of Olives. To sum it up, there are many principles involved in a sound approach to the interpretation of prophetic scripture. Among them must be an understanding of how God's universe works. Repetition and cycles are unavoidably observed all around us in every field of science and in every form of art. History records how God has been telling his story through utilizing cycles. To ignore this principle is to ignore the fact that the sun will rise tomorrow like it has, according to its cycle, many times before. Scripture deals with many events that appear to have been repeated in the past. Scripture oftentimes ties events of the past to what will happen in the future. Just as we cannot ignore the rest of reality, It's only through understanding that God's universe works according to many types of cycles that we can accurately approach the study of end times prophecy. Understanding that God's universe works in cycles clears up confusion and provides an explanation of how both preterists and futurists may be right about how to interpret Jesus' statement during his Olivet Discourse. Many of these things have indeed already occurred one or more times in the past, yet They will occur for the last and final time in the future. There are definite cycles that can be identified in Bible prophecy, such as the cycle indicated in the symbolism of the beast depicted in the book of Revelation. The value of identifying cyclical prophecies in history, such as the events of 70 A.D. in Jerusalem, is to better understand what the future holds for the world in the final days before our Messiah returns. The future Antichrist will likely operate in a similar manner that he has in the past. What happened in 70 AD qualifies for being one of several abominations of desolations, but not the abomination of desolation, which Jesus was referring to during the Olivet Discourse. The bottom line, when someone tells me that some of the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse appear to have been fulfilled in 70 AD, my response could be, if I spoke in a much more direct way than I do with people in person. So what? God's universe operates in cycles, and the ultimate fulfillment is yet to come. Well, until next time, God bless and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at com, or email me at doug at com. That's doug at d-o-u-g-h-o-o-l-e-y.com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.